And initially I was going to write about both the Manson murders and the Zodiac murders. And then I decided, no, 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 that's way too ambitious. Wouldn't it be interesting to have a character whose father dated one of the victims of the Zodiac killer? Hello, Shockers. I'm Connie White, the Communications Director here at Wichita State's Alumni Association, and this is the first ever Shocker Lit reading in our Shock Talk, Shock Art podcast series. Our inaugural reader is writer and educator Carrie Jones. A longtime friend of mine, Carrie is the director of the Writing Center at Wichita State, where she also teaches courses in composition and literature. She holds a BA in English from Mansfield University with dual minors in philosophy and creative writing. She's also a proud Shocker graduate of WSU's MFA program. Carrie is the author of two collections of short stories and of the novel Dime Store Rita. Among her many writing accolades are winning the 2002 Richard Yates Short Story Award, receiving special mention in the 2005 Pushcart Prize Anthology, and being named a finalist for the Flannery O'Connor Short Fiction Award, as well as the 2010 first runner-up for the Wabash Prize. Today, just for us, and with a tip of the witch's hat to this Halloween season, Carrie is reading us the first half of her new short story, Love American Style. Carrie, welcome. Thank you. Before you jump in and read for us, tell us a little bit about the story. Give us a setup without giving anything away. Without giving anything away. Let's see. A few summers ago, like maybe two summers ago, um, I happened to be listening to NPR. And I think it was June. And um, the story, one of the s stories that they let off with was um, one of the people, the women involved in the Manson murders was once again up for parole. And it had been a long time. I mean, I read, um, oh, Helter Skelter years and years ago, as you do in high school. And... Um, I don't know what happened. Oh, I do know what happened. Um, I heard that, and it just so happened a few days before I had watched it just come out in the late 2000s with Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, Zodiac, the right, film. Right. And all of a sudden, the two kind of collided, and I don't know why, because I'm not usually a genre writer or somebody who writes crime or anything like that. But I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have a shadow of this part of our history? You know, it would be neat to write about it. And initially, I was going to write about both the Manson murders and the Zodiac murders. And then I decided, no, 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 that's way too ambitious. Let's just pare it down. And I thought, wouldn't it be interesting to have a character, so you don't dwell too much on it, um, who has a little bit of a connection to these murders. And so I decided, wouldn't it be interesting to have a character whose father dated one of the victims of the Zodiac Killer? And one thing led to another. And without giving too much of it away, um, trying to put uh, I think the main character is trying to figure out how 
that connection that she has, which is distant at best, connects with some of the things and, and the death that um, she's encountered in her own life. And so, right, right. Well, I have been one of the people who've read the full story, and I love the way you play with memory. Um, and without talking any more about that, we're going to jump into Love American Style. Okay. On the Riverside City College campus in 1966, the girls were wearing skirts and dresses that still touched the knee. The dashiki look wouldn't hit until two or three years later. Sometimes the girls would wear pedal pushers or capris, but that was only after classes. In the evenings, to the library where there no, were no social expectations other than to study, and you could tuck your legs under your cell in a secondhand couch. The guys wore crisp dress shirts, short-sleeved but definitely ironed, white socks, loafers with just enough scruff to be hip but not ratty. My father always said there wasn't a hippie in sight, not then. All around you were perfect young Americans. This was, after all, RCC, not Yale, not UCLA. This was a stepping stone to the good, solid lives of their parents, who had worked so very hard to set good, solid examples. The guys were there to take over the family business, work at the local bank, sell life insurance. The girls would become teachers, secretaries, have lives of their own for a little while before finding the right man, settling down, having children. It was an uncomplicated future. There was nothing wrong with it, nothing to argue about. Or, like Sherry Joe, you could get a year of college under your belt and then become a stewardess, see a bit of the world before settling down. Unless something got in the way. Unless something really complicated happened. Getting pregnant, the death of a parent, getting too caught up in the hippie scene and turning into a real freak getting murdered on your way home from the library. That's part of the story. What did I know about their lives before they were my parents? Did I really care? I didn't. What did you know of your parents' lives? When you were 16, I mean. See, you know I'm right. You didn't care either. If you look closely enough now, there's always a pattern. It doesn't matter whether it's love or murder, but in the beginning, you don't look for a pattern because you don't care, until you do, but that always comes later. For instance, here's another part of the story. The first apartment I remember is the one they had on Westgate Drive in Bethlehem, a place in Pennsylvania that's very far away from California. On the wall in the dining room was a picture from their wedding. They were married in October of 1969. October is my mother's favorite month. They were married late in the afternoon on a Saturday in a church in the Poconos. The leaves were in full foliage. One week later, those beautiful leaves would be gone. The trees barren, winter on the horizon. In the picture, my parents stand before their three-tiered wedding cake and they are all smiles for the camera. My father is slender in his white jacket, his eyes hidden behind thick Buddy Holly glasses. 
My mother is not wearing her glasses. And one day, years later, I wonder how she ever managed to see a thing that day. Her veil sits upon curls of black hair piled high on her head. Both of their hands clasp a knife that will make that first cut deep into the cake, so symbolic of the first break into the rest of their lives. I adored the photo because they looked so young and so happy. And even when I was four, I could hardly believe those two people in the picture were really my parents. They were like something out of a fairy tale. They were beautiful people. After we moved into the house, the picture hung on another wall for a while and then disappeared. I found it in the hall closet one day when I was about 12. I was looking for my snow boots. Thinking she had forgotten about it and thought it was misplaced, I pulled it out and took it to her where she was ironing in the kitchen. Oh, that old damn thing, she said when I showed it to her. Just put it back in the closet where you found it. But I love this picture, I said. Don't you want to hang it back up? No, she said without looking up. I can't stand the sight of it. That seemed so mean, so cruel. It seemed disrespectful of my father, even though neither one of them seemed to respect each other anymore. But wait a second. See what I mean? This is what I'm trying to tell you. We only think we know a story. And don't tell me you were never dumb enough or young enough to have once believed you could actually bring back love too. Don't tell me you never believed you didn't possess that kind of power. Why, I asked her, why can't you stand it? And I was so sure she was going to say, because I can't stand your father, because I don't love him anymore. She just said, it's too old fashioned and we look utterly ridiculous. I put the picture back in the closet. One afternoon, many years later, I tried to find it, but it wasn't there. It wasn't anywhere else either. It was almost as though it was never real, but I know it was. I didn't make it up. You don't make something like true love up. The only thing you do is wish it had lasted. More of the story. If I knew my parents had other girlfriends or boyfriends, I always hate to hesitate to call them lovers, I didn't worry about them. They didn't matter. Why should they? That part of their lives was like a choose-your-own-adventure that didn't go anywhere. A loose thread. A dress you bought for some event and never wore. A phone off the hook. But Sherry Jo was the kind of girl guys took home to meet their mothers. She wore the right kind of clothes, had the right kind of friends, and she had ambition, but not too much. She usually wore her hair in a second wave bob. In her high school picture, she is mid-60s virginal, and she seems to be coming at you right out of a Breck hairspray ad. She is not Sharon Tate sexy. She is Nebraska Heartland wholesome. Any young man would be proud to have her as a wife. Any family would be proud to welcome her as a daughter. Any man would want to have her. You didn't have to be a fool to see that. Any man. In the note the police received, the killer wrote, she was young and beautiful, but now she is battered and dead. 
Miss Bates was stupid. She went like she went to the slaughter like a lamb. She did not put up a struggle. But later, the killer contradicted himself when he wrote, she died hard. She squirmed and shook as I choked her. Her lips twitched. She let out a scream once. People lie all the time, but not always on purpose. It just happens sometimes when they least expect it. There were no witnesses to what happened to Sherry Jo after she left the library. There was no one at the library who remembered seeing her that evening. Sometimes people will believe they saw something when they really didn't, but that never happened. No one saw Sherry Jo. But one person who lived near the campus told police that close to 11 o'clock that night, she heard an awful scream. I suppose that was true. What I mean is, the scream was probably real. My father told me she liked to dance. This was later on, after I found out who she was. Up until that night, when my mother and I were watching television and a documentary came on about it, I just figured she was one of those California girls from my father's past. Girls my mother would get jealous about after too much wine. It got to the point where she hated everything about California, even the Beach Boys. It was ridiculous. And then one night, there it was, a show about the Zodiac. My father was working late that night. My mother was sitting on the sofa and balancing a gin and tonic between her knees. She said, oh, for God's sake, here we go. And I said, what? And she said, just wait for it. They didn't mention her until the very end. And there she was, her high school photograph all beautiful and perfect and alive. My mother said, oh, there she is, there she is, your father's sweet Sherry Jo. I finally knew. I was sitting on the living room floor and I finally knew. I couldn't move. I wanted to turn around and look at my mother, but everything about me was frozen. That's probably what it was like right before the end happened. Maybe he said her name. Maybe she turned around and then this happened and that happened and the other thing happened. And finally, Sherry Jo knew. She knew she was going to die that night. She just couldn't move. By the time she screamed, it was just too late. After that, I could sometimes talk about her. And that's when my father told me that she liked to dance. He told me her father got nervous if she stayed out too late. He told me Sherry Jo liked Sam Cooke. He told me Sherry Jo liked the smell of Old Spice and she smelled like talcum powder and he liked it when he held her close as they dance. He told me Sherry Jo didn't want to commit, that she liked being with the Riverside boys, but she wanted something, something more. She was a girl who was going places she was a girl who was meant to be remembered. You see, her name was not a name my mother would allow my father to say. My mother could say it though. I would hear it during arguments. Lying in bed in summer nights after they'd both had too much to drink, I'd sometimes hear her name and wonder who she was 
and for a long time, I didn't even know she was dead. During arguments, when my father was getting the upper hand, she'd come back like a Lady Madeline. You should have married her. Why didn't you marry her? And my father would say, stop it, just stop it. You know I couldn't marry her. I only saw her for a few times, for Christ's sake. Then one night, my mother said some magic words. Maybe you should have seen her a few more times, stuck with it. Maybe then she wouldn't be dead, but you can't stick with anything. That night, I heard the sound of a glass breaking and there weren't any more words, no more fighting. I don't remember falling asleep. In the morning, my father was at the breakfast table drinking coffee and, and my mother was making me scrambled eggs. She handed my father his toast and he said to me, good morning, pumpkin. And it was as though I dreamed it all, made the whole thing up. Sometimes it's hard to know what's real and what isn't. And that, shockers, is the first half of Love American Style. For the second half of Carrie's story, Love American Style, please visit the Alumni Association's home webpage at shockeralumni.org. Carrie, thank you for being here. Thank you for being our very first Shocker Lit Reader. Thank you so much for having me. It was a blast. Ha <laughs> ha